Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we're talking about, I mean, this is just such a classic Adventure Sports Podcast interview. When, whenever I have one of those just amazing conversations about an adventure that's so purely nuts, uh, I often talk about it for a while. And after I recorded this episode, I was telling everybody, uh, everybody around me about this. Imagine kayaking by yourself, unsupported, kayaking now in a kayak. Like, think about this from California, Monterey, California, all the way to Hawaii by yourself, totally unsupported. That is what we're talking about today with Cyril Deramo. And this conversation was crazy because the trip was 40% longer than he expected, ran out of food, nearly did this while working full time uh in the sense of like saving up for it and getting ready for it worked you know doesn't have any magic string he pulls in his life he just figured this out as far as logistically raising some money saving a bunch of money uh, has a family and did this incredible achievement and has an amazing background uh you're going to learn a lot about Cyril. He speaks like half a dozen languages. And this 91-day, almost 92-day experience of kayaking. And if you're like, how is that possible? Well, look up a picture of this kayak. If you've seen ocean rowing boats, it's kind of like that, just smaller for one person instead of what usually is for teams of two or four or six or eight for those ocean rowing expeditions. But one of the craziest things I've ever heard And on top of all that, he was fighting against the wind current and the wave currents for weeks, the first few weeks, going basically two steps forward and one step back because he had to sleep. A lot of these ocean rowing trips can switch off every two hours, so they always have someone propelling them forward. With you're by yourself, when you stop, all momentum stops too. Did not use a sail, didn't use anything like that. Crazy story. If you want to learn more about Cyril, Go to the show notes. There's some links there. Uh, But what an amazing achievement of human power uh, and will and mental fortitude. And I'm excited for you to listen. So let's go ahead and jump in. All right, folks, you heard a little bit about Cyril's story in the uh, the intro, but we're going to welcome him now. Cyril Deramo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me in. I'm really happy. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm. I, this is uh, this is one of those stories that you you kind of itching to talk to you because this is like I've never heard of anyone doing this. It's a first time. It's such a huge adventure. It was so long, ninety one days, ninety two days, um, and all the preparation and all. There's no guidebook for this for you. You have to figure all this out on your own. But um, the first question before we jump in. I always ask is, where are you coming from today? Because I see you're in a car. And then where is home for you if that's not the same place? Well, I'm in uh, California and I just finished my two-hour training on the water. I'm back. You know, although I finished my crossing four four weeks ago, I just love to be on the water. So I had a a sprint kayaking uh, this morning and was with friends. Obviously, my lung capacity was not as <laughs> as good as I wish. But uh, yeah, I'm in um, Sausalito, which is uh, right on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Oh my gosh! So, so uh, I mean, are you still reeling from the experience? Four weeks ago is not very long. I mean, and I'm sure it's flying by. But are your friends still just asking you questions? Are you still telling stories and processing what you just went through? Yes, and it's I actually love it. People that are inspired by the story need to listen to to me because I think that's you never know who you're going to inspire. And I've been jumping in all the podcasts that I could just to share the passion. Well, for me, it's kayaking, but it's it's really all about you know feeling your fire and your motivation and and going after it. So my it changes depending on who I'm speaking with. If I'm talking to somebody who's uh, an ultra endurance athlete, I'm going to say certain things. Somebody who's more of a novice, I'm going to say other things, knowing that probably some person will understand more what I've been through compared to others. But yeah, I'm so happy to share it. So happy. That's awesome. Well, well, this this group, our listeners are kind of everything along the adventure spectrum. We we get. 
it's so funny. We do listener surveys, which we have one right now. And so often we get such a balanced view of like, hey, more expert level adventurers, please, or more everyday adventurers. Everyone is represented here. And it's so funny. Like I, if we're striking that balance, I think it's good. But there's there's every everything from newbies to people like you that have done some incredible things that listen to this show. But I'll be honest, like this is such a crazy adventure. I kind of want to start at the beginning. You you grew up in France, um, or you were born in France, but you're you're uh, have been in America for a while. Have you always been a part of the water? What what led you to um, being on the water in the first place? Because I know this isn't your first experience with ocean rowing or ocean kayaking. I was born in France in a small town in the north of France, five thousand inhabitants. And I stayed there until I was 18. I really didn't move at all. And my sport was soccer. I was doing a little bit of windsurfing with my parents in Brittany, so the west side of France, not not far from Normandy. But that was the my water exp- exposure. And after that, believe it or not, when I was 18, I was an exchange student and I went to Arkansas for one year. <laughs> and they put me in the football team because I was a kicker. And, and then after I got to discover uh, America and, you know, the sports, baseball, basketball, I had no idea how to play all of this. But I was always, you know, athletic and loved the sports, but it was just soccer. And after that, I came back to France. I did a master's degree in international business. So it was a five-year degree. And then that brought me to live one year in Oxford, England, one year in Madrid, Spain, and one year in Paris. And after that, I got the bug of traveling and learning languages. So After Spanish, then I decided to move to Italy for a year and a half in Milan. And after that, well, you know, I decided to go around the world for one year of backpacking. I was, you know, even though I had a master's degree, I said, well, I'm not ready to go for a career yet. So we did 12 months around the world. It cost me $7,000 to do that trip. And after that, I said, okay, I love Brazil. I'm going to Brazil. So I lived in Brazil for six months. And, you know, I could go on and on. I mean, it's crazy. I, then I went back to France for a year, but I had to each to go back. So I found a job finally, and I moved to Argentina for a year and a half. And that's how I got into the wine business. And after a year and a half, my project was done back to France. But then I was itching to move. And America was always in my mind, like, I want to live in this country. So I moved to California and working in the wine business. And I've been here for 14 years. And that's when I moved here. You know, soccer in Argentina, Brazil, Italy, Spain, that was a great key to meet people and do that sport. But when I moved here, a friend of mine from Fiji said, Cyril, um, you should come and try Adriger Canoe. Uh, what is that? I had no clue. Well, you know, it's this six-man boat and there's an outrigger and we go out the gate and it's, it's cool. And, and I was hooked. So I started paddling only when I was 32 and now I'm 46. So I was a very late comer to paddling and when you think about it, it took me 14 years from the first race, which was only eight miles, to crossing the Pacific alone. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, I, I'm 32. And that's oh, exciting. There you go. You're gonna cross the, <laughs> I'm going to coach you, and you're going to cross the Pacific in 14 years, my oh friend. Oh, my gosh. No, that's so funny because, you know, at my age, there's, I, I have two young kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so much of me is like, dang it, you know, I'm not... What, you know, I can't do, but I don't ever, I don't actually think this, but you know, it just creeps in sometimes like, oh, I can't do oh, yeah. anything anymore. And then yeah. you're, you started your journey at this age with, with what you're doing now. And so it's so not true. So for anyone listening, it's the same boat for you. Um, no pun intended. You are, it's never too late to start stuff. We've talked to so many people on this show that didn't get into the sport they love now till like their mid sixties and they're doing things that. I'm blown away at my age. Like I could never do that. And they didn't pick up the sport until they were retired. And so it's so cool to hear that, that you didn't start until 32 and have been all over the place. But yeah, hey, what an introduction to the U.S., by the way, Arkansas. That had to be, I don't know <laughs> yeah, if that's culture. I've never, you know, I don't know much about where you grew up in France, but that had to be a different experience. Oh, yeah, it was. But, you know, they're so welcoming over there. And when I, I found a host family through the, this company and they, they asked me to put, you know, what I liked. I loved nature. I loved lakes. I was a little bit of a hunter in France and athletic. I had a five child family. So I wanted family feeling. And I got to say, those guys were so welcoming. And to this day, you know, it's been 
what, 25 years? I see, I'm still in contact with my host family. And that year was key. And I invite everybody to send your kids more than 18 one year overseas because it changes their mind. It was so crucial. And then the funny thing is I loved it so much that I actually got a, you know, the the team of, uh, it's the Razorbacks, right? They yeah. build the University of Arkansas. So I got a tattoo of a Razorback before I left. <laughs> do, do you know what a redneck well, is? That is uh, yeah, that is that is a that. redneck <laughs> thing to do right there. Get the Arizona exactly. or, or the. Well, uh, but I was smart enough. I did it in my butt butt cheek so that I would, could still hide it. <laughs> hey, you know, it's funny. I, I live in Florida, not terribly far from Arkansas, and uh, we have Razorbacks here too. One of them, I was hiking the other day, and one chased me up a tree. Those things are oh, mean. Really? Those oh, things are mean. It, it didn't get my butt like it got yours, but it was, uh, um, it was close. So I, I, they are vicious animals, um, vicious yeah. animals. But hey, that's a great mess, guy. That is yeah. hilarious that you got the tattoo. <laughs> yeah, let, let me come back to the fact that when you start a passion late, I think there's no, like you said, there's there's no time to to start. I think it's all by following your vibration, and and people try to find happiness. And how do you define happiness? Is it buying a new car, getting a bigger career, a bigger house or whatever? It's, it's hard to define happiness. But what I think is follow your vibration. If you do something and you feel alive, you'll love it. Do more of it. Do it again and again. It doesn't have to be sports related. It could be just having your friends over. It could be going on a hike. It could be traveling overseas or listening to some music that you love. Find your, your vibration and follow that. And that's a key to what I've done the last 15 years. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I have to completely agree with that. Just following that thread of, of what makes you really feel alive and it changes throughout your life too. I I feel like the things that make me feel alive right now, weren't the things five years ago, even, um, or even a couple years ago. And it's definitely not the same things 10 years ago, but if you keep following that thread, I uh, clearly it's going to lead you all over the world. Like it has you and might lead you to discover a sport. You didn't realize you love and would become such a big part of your journey. And we're talking as if your journey is complete. You're st- you're, you're in the middle of a journey. This is just the most recent expression of it. And, it is definitely worthy of an episode on this show by a long shot uh, what you just did. So, so tell us, so you discover, you know, uh, uh, ocean rowing and being on the water at 32. And I know that you did a number of expeditions um, that kind of led to this point, but what, what are some of those highlights uh, of, of what really got you into long distance ocean exploring? Yeah. So uh, I started Adriger canoe paddling so you, you paddle 15 strokes on one side 15 on the other side and i after six months i did the first race which was eight miles and to tell you how much i didn't know anything about nutrition i was just a soccer player or hydration and i i said i woke up one day at work four o'clock in the morning to eat my pasta so i would have my carb load for the race at 10 a.m you know and and i was so fired up i loved it and my coach, a friend of mine now, says, okay, well, the next one is going to be this 32-mile race. It's from Newport Beach to Catalina. And it's a water change. you got to prepare. So I had six months to prepare. I was fired up. You know, I started cycling, tried to see, okay, what what the heart rate should be for this kind of adventure. How do I do, like, more five hours of consecutive workout, you know? And then after I've done that, I had a blast. And the next one is the Molokai Hoi. It's also an outrigger canoe race from the island of Molokai to Oahu. And it's uh, 43 miles. So now I'm, I'm ramping it up a little bit miles, right? From eight miles to 43. And I did that four times. I loved it. And you reach the wall, you pass it, and then you have that thrill of, of, of arriving. And it was six hours. And the next one was a race called the California 100. It's 100 miles down the Sac River. And that's about 12 hours. And I did that. And that's the first one where I thought, oh, you know, over 10 hours, I actually managed really well my hydration, really well my my food, my injury-free and how to, you know, the best stroke. So then I said, okay, there's another race called the Yukon River Quest, which is up in Canada. It's 444 miles. And I'm a little bit of a, a spark. So I convinced some friends that it was a good idea to do. <laughs> and those guys said, okay, well, how do we trade for this? And, you know, as you get more experience, you say, okay, well, if it's going to be a 45-hour race, then we need to manage our sleep. We need to, well, manage our effort. We need to manage not not to be cold, finding the right gear. And 
and and then you get to you get better and better. So I did that race three times, and then I stumbled upon this website that says you don't have to be a rower to cross an ocean rowing, and I had never rowed before. So the difference between paddling and rowing is a paddle, you know, would be like a kayak or a canoe would be also on one side. Kayak would be both sides, right? And rowing would be going with oars backwards. So I never rowed before, but it's a beginner's mind say, well, that sounds pretty cool to cross an ocean. <laughs> well, it's going to take 40 days. Okay, how do you prepare for that? And I put together a team. I said, well, if I do it once in my life, I, I want to beat the record. I'm a little bit competitive that way. So we found a team one by one. First, it was Carlo from San Jose, California. It was an amazing rower, a coach at UC Davis rowing. And then Carlo, my friend from Brazil, who was so good rower, and, and Fian from Iceland. We got the team and we went for the record. We, we did that in... in 39 days. And I ended up like, I'm a normal guy. And I ended up in the Guinness World <laughs> Record book. And then when I finished this, I said, okay, that's it. This, I mean, you wrote two hours on, two hours off, all day, all night for 40 days. And I was like, this is too hard for me. I'm, that's it. I'm just going to go back to kayaking. So, and that was it for like four years. And then, you know, I'm a dreamer. I started to read other adventures of crossing ocean in a kayak. That was really seldom done. It's been only done like six times compared to rowing an ocean, which is 600 times. So I kind of thought, okay, well, I've got the kayaking experience. I've got the navigation at sea. I've, got, I've done it before. If I could build a boat and do it, that would be really cool. So I went on to try to do that. Wow. And you talked about ocean rowing. We've had ocean rowers on the show before. And if you haven't seen those boats, most people listening to the show probably have because we've talked about it so many times and this is the community that, that likes that kind of thing. You know, it's it's the boat that um, has the cabins on either end, like storage on one end, cabins on the other. There's a flat kind of deck part where you row, but an ocean kayak is not like that. However your kayak that you had made for this is almost kind of in between the two. It's like a narrower, smaller version of the ocean rowing vessel. Can you, can you tell us about the, the boat itself? Because I, I don't think people are interested. You kayaked this distance across the Pacific. You did not ocean row, which is, you know, not common, but it's way more common than, than, than kayaking. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, there's there's a, a democratization of these adventures, and the rowing boat is really good for that because you're higher on the water, you have a really good stability, and you use the oars and the uh, the rowing technique, which is using the legs. Yep. So you can have a team of three, four people. Now, kayaking, you're much lower on the water. I could touch the water on both sides once I was sitting down, right? So I'm really close to the water and that brings different challenges that any wave could swamp my cockpit. And because I'm only using paddles uh, of, of kayak then have less power and the cabin has to be smaller. But I always wanted to be this to be an adventure. And I love life to the fullest. So there's no way I would risk my life. Even though there's some risk, they could be mitigated with a good preparation. But the... Like the first moment I spoke to the boat builder in England, his name is Rob Philo. He had built the boat before for another kayaker who did the North Atlantic. I said, okay, I, for me, safety is first. I don't care if the boat is a little bit slower. I want a boat that is completely seaworthy, that will be self-frightening in case of capsizing, and that would be literally insubmersible, that would not sink. Right. So that was my... My criteria, safety first. I would be attached at all times. And, you know, I've got two kids and I love I love life again. So if I were to go on an adventure like this, I would be a long time at sea, completely alone, unsupported. I wanted to have the best tools. So tell us about this boat real quick. I'm looking at pictures of it right now. It's very small. The cabin, there's a picture of you and it looks like it looks like a you know when when the the drying the dryer is overstuffed with clothes, and it's just like pouring <laughs> out. It looks like you're the clothes inside a dryer that you open up, and you can barely fit in there. But maybe that's just the picture. You tell me what. There's a little cabin on the back, and and I'm gonna have pictures so people can visualize this. But 
you and there's times that you had to hide in there for days at a time to weather storms. What was in that cabin? How much room did you have? And, and what could you compare that to besides a coffin? So what I would say, it's a, it's a one-man tent, but one of those tiny little tents that you do if you go, by, uh, you know, bike packing, uh, something super, super light, just the length of your body. Now, the producer who built the boat said, we have to make it as tiny as possible because you have to pull your weight. And if we make it bigger, then the wind is going to influence the boat and it's going to be harder to paddle. So we started to, you know, brainstorm about how long it would be. I'm a 5'10", and we actually added a few inches to the feet, a few inches to the head, and that would be the length of the of the cabin. Now, what I did, I had crossed the ocean six years ago, so I knew what a cabin would like, but this is much smaller. And to adapt to it, there's only one way, to grow progressively. So what I did is, once I had the measurement, I'd build a wooden mock-up of this in my backyard, and I would spend afternoons in it on my computer working or even spending knives. My girlfriend would say, what are you doing? You're 46. What are you doing in that backyard? But that's passion talking, you know? And what I did when I got the boat finally in California from England, and it was on the trailer, I slept on the boat in on the trailer. And then I put the boat on the water on the dock and I, I slept on it on the dock. And then I put it on the buoy in the bay. But so there would be more waves and I would sleep on it. And then, I, you know, it's like progressive. You adapt progressively to the conditions you have to 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 live in but yeah that boat is is amazing man it's got all the technology solar panels two lithium-ion batteries so i have electricity and i can power all the equipment inside and the biggest is the water maker that is consuming quite a bit of energy because i cannot carry as many as much water for this crossing i had to make it along the way now I still had 220 pounds of food for you know freeze dried meals and bars and and supplements. Um, so uh, I mean it's part of the preparation. What do I carry? I know I'll be slow if I carry a lot of food, and I'll be faster if I carry less. But who knows? You have to be prepared for everything. And and that's the thing is is this was completely completely unsupported from any outside source. It was 100% self supported. Um, so you had to take everything you were planning to bring other than the water that you could uh, desalinate on the way uh, along the way. But everything else was right there. T- tell us about moving this kayak because a kayak weighed down can, can be, you know, it takes a little bit of effort to get it going. What was it like paddling this thing? Was it, I mean, was it just like trying to push a truck along the road? You know what I mean? <laughs> Is it just that hard to get going? It's 800 pounds, uh, fully loaded when I left. Uh, And a regular kayak would be, what, 60 pounds. So definitely the stroke would have to be different. At the beginning, it's really heavy. It's like, I would say, yeah, you you can't really pull the the kayak at the the very beginning like like you do a normal kayak. So I would go slowly. And then after the stroke would be like deep stroke and and just pull the boat. But once it's, it's like a little train. And once it's on the rails, there's good momentum. It tracks really well, and if you're lucky to have a little bit of a swell behind you, then you can you know surf a little bit. You wouldn't really surf a wave, but it would give you a little bit of momentum. And the wave after wave, then you could get uh, going like this. When you when you started talking about this idea, first of all, how did your girlfriend react? How did your family react? And what what was maybe the the most common reaction to telling people what you were going to do? Well, the people that know me know that I'm very detailed. Well, first, I'm a dreamer. And and if I have something in my mind, you know, I was going to do it and I'm going to do it. But I think I'm very detailed oriented and I'm not going to go into something that I don't think I can do. And although the idea was appealing at first, there's a moment when you think like you believe in your core, then you can do it. And that's only then that you can you can do it. So it took me a year or two to read books and no more. And until I had that feeling that okay, it's it's achievable for me, then only then did I start talking about it. And and then you look at all the risk. Obviously, then if you're separated from your boat, then you know it, it takes a long time for people to come rescue you if you're in the middle. So I would reassure them by saying I'll be attached at all times, even if it's completely flat. You know, I'll have a really great team with me. I'll be knowing the boat inside out 
And and that means knowing the electricity. I need to be able to repair anything on the boat. I'll be working on the boat so I can repair epoxy and, and carbon fiber. And I'll spend some time on the ocean to know the boat, how the boat reacts and how what I need to, to improve. Now, it was not easy because I've done the first attempt in 2021 and I had to be rescued. Um, I lasted only six days. The first three days were good good weather, I did good mileage, but then the the weather changed suddenly um, and I had a professional weather router and he didn't see that coming, but the wind started to pick up and the sixth day, uh, three days I was stuck in the cabin, uh, day and night, uh, sixth day, it, it was too big, I had an issue with my sea anchor, which is, uh, uh, it's a parachute that you put at the back of the boat and what it does after, you know, the boat will be perpendicular to the waves so that you ride the waves in a, in a safe way. Now, it was gusting 45 knots, you know, so it was 35 knots of wind gusting 45. That's really big seas, you know, 14-foot seas. And once I had the sea anchor issue, then my boat was sideways to the wave, and I I, I thought it was uh, you know, dangerous for my life. So safety first. I had a protocol in place to call the Coast Guards and they came to pick me up. But I've learned a lot from that event. It was not easy because I had to learn my lesson. It's okay, what went wrong? Was it in my mind? Was it the boat? Was it my preparation in bad seas? And I had to really look at what I had to do the year after to be ready. That that first attempt in 2021, did doubt creep in at all that like maybe I can't do this? Um, no. Um, here's what happened. I, I actually thought I was ready, but I was not given a fair shot because the weather was not good. But the conversation that I had with Scott Donaldson, it's another paddler, he crossed the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand. Right after, like a week after, I had a talk with him. And here's how it goes. He said, Cyril, okay, well, uh, did you think you were prepared? And I said, well, yeah, I was prepared. Like the first six days were great. You know, I was stuck in the cabin, but I didn't feel fearful. fearful. And it was like my cocoon. I felt great. Yeah, but Cyril, you were rescued. So do you think you were prepared? I said, well, when I got rescued, I had all the protocols. You know, I did survival at sea training, I had a VHF training so I could call, call the U.S. Coast Guards and, and I had the right gear, I had the survival seat, I had the PFD, I had the strobe, I had the flares, I had the V. Yeah, but Cyril, you were rescued. So do you think you were prepared? <laughs> and then I had to say, okay, I wasn't prepared. What? And he said, okay, Cyril, now we can start. Let's see, you're, how can you prepare to bigger sea? You need to, I don't care if you sleep a month in calm seas that's not going to get you prepared you're going to have to go in bigger seas so i went to santa cruz and when the wind was blowing it did four days and really hard winds and you know and then we started to say okay what what can you improve on your boat what can you do um to your preparation that will improve like maybe mentally and and that was key and you know he said the ocean will always always be there when you're ready and and i think you know it's um you can read all the books you want talk to all the people that have done it before and even have done it before because I was as a rower, I did it. There's nothing that can prepare you to that kind of weather and that kind of situation other than living it. So I really didn't see it as a failure. Like to your question, did I feel bad? Yes, I did. Cause I had trained for three years for this, but I was not going to give up on the dream. Wow. Well, take us through that. Um, the day you set off, you know, all this preparation. And, and actually, when I was doing research from this, that is an interesting thing I came across was how much you did face and how much went wrong and how much, you know, just how many obstacles there were, like the first attempt only getting six days in before you had to be rescued. The second attempt, things like your electrical going out, missing a storm, missing a hurricane, just barely missing a hurricane. Oh, yeah. yeah. Despite yeah. all the prep and all the preparation, all the training, all... Uh, the the thoughtfulness it was so like wow this you really took it seriously and all your experience it just showed me just how narrow the window of opportunity was and just how challenging this was to actually do and how much longer it took than you expected all that to say my question is what did it feel like to you when you set out on that first day on that second attempt like What's going through your mind? How do you feel? Are you nervous? Do you have a rush of adrenaline? Are you calm at this point because you've done it so many times? How are you feeling as you set out? Because I, I frankly wouldn't be able to sleep at least a week beforehand. So how are you feeling? The, the pressure the last three weeks is increasing 
uh, you're nervous and you're a little bit stressed because you're about to set off in an adventure that is going to be two or three months. And there's so many things that could go wrong. And having known that, you know, I had to be rescued the first time increases also a little bit. But what I had decided uh, between the first and the second attempt was actually to be less available for press and, and media <clears throat> in general. And here's here's my thought process. The first time, you know, I'm an adventurer. I want to make a living out of it. So you need to have eyeballs. And I contacted all the press and I wanted TV to be there because the sponsors will want, want to see eyeballs, right, on, on your adventure. And Kayaker is... Crossing Ocean is so seldom that they actually came. But the first time, here's what happened. With the social media, it gives you a fake sense of achievement. Because although we say the hardest on this project is actually to get to the starting line, which is true, but the starting line is just the beginning. And when you know the, the pier was flooded because there were so many people at the pier, friends on the first attempt, sending me good, good vibes to go, I kind of felt like a sense of... Um, you know, I had done it, but no, it's the beginning. So on the second attempt, I said, I, I told myself, okay, I'm going to ask myself a question every time I have to decide something. Is this going to help me reach success in Hawaii? So if you talk about social media, no, it's actually not going to help you because, <laughs> you know, it, it's just secondary. So no social media. Is the press going to help me reach Hawaii? No. Is spending more time on my boat, working on it? Yes. Is training four hours a day going to help me reach? Yes. You know, so I had this one question. So for the second attempt, I decided not to go from San Francisco, the Golden Gate, which was more of a marketing decision. But I said, okay, I'm going to do it low key. I'm going to go from Monterey, where it's a smaller harbor, and I can go just more intimate. But both times, the stress was building up to the departure. And once I, I took off, and all the friends were, you know, leaving on the chase boats and turn around and that's it, you're alone on the ocean. Then there's a relief. It's actually, you feel confident. Uh, okay, that's me in the ocean. Now that's me. That's what I've been working for. Now let's enjoy it. That is really interesting you say that. One of the last guests I've had on said that telling people what you're going to do and getting people uh, basically being in awe of your idea can give you that same false sense of accomplishment that uh, completing yes. it actually does. So a lot of people get, they get a kick and they get their thrill from telling people what they're going to do without actually ever doing it. So you got to be careful about that as an adventurer. So we, we do get folks that never speak about what they're doing. Maybe that what they're doing is really um, dangerous. So they don't want to have to live up to other people's expectations that they've told. Other times people say, you know, telling everyone is my way of basically forcing a, myself to do it. Right, um, being accountable. Yeah, being, say, being accountable. Right? Exactly. That's the word for it, accountability. And uh, I, I found that, that that was my method early on, and now it's more let's be subtle about it and talk about it later. But that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So as you set out, you said, you know, a calmness came over you. You were excited. Your confidence was building. What was the first challenge? What was one of the first cruxes of, of the experience where – that really took your effort to, to get through? Well, it comes down to the, the actual course. Um, you have to take off from the California coast and there's currents and wind pushing you south. So you have to make a west progress and that you need to have like low wind and good weather. So I knew that I, the first week I would have to push hard. So I did my 12 hours of paddling and you have to deal with I mean, I'm always seasick. <laughs> so I had four four days I was seasick and, you know, you're vomiting and and you can't really hydrate or eat. You have to force feed yourself. And then the first week is also when you adapt to the cabin, you adapt to the 12 hours of paddling and you adapt to also the waking up every hour to look for container ships. So that's the first week. Second week, usually it's the boat that is kind of showing its sign of a failure. If something has to go wrong, usually it goes, it comes the first two or the three weeks. And then after you're more into a routine, but the first three weeks, yeah, I've got issues with a compartment that got flooded, a little failure of, uh, on the steering lines, make them like super hard to steer. And then you said the battery is starting to fail on me because of the coast, there's like foggy and, and cloudy weather. So it's not really replenishing the battery as well. And I really recall after day 10 or 14, something around that, there's like a new departure. 
the first departure was taking off, pushing off the pier, saying goodbye, and okay, you're done. But the second one was the most crucial one because after all these failures, like, this is not fair. I prepared so much. And I've got these issues, like, do I need to go back to land? And I was looking at the map, and I, after a week of paddling, I could go back to L.A. And Or I say to myself, I'm going to commit, and I'm going to go towards Hawaii, and there's going to be 2,000 miles of open ocean, and the rescue is not going to come after it. But I got to do and jump. You know, that's really like when you're on the edge and you have to jump. You have to commit and believe in yourself more than even the first departure where you're going to say, well, no matter what happens, what problem I will face, I will solve it. So that's a trust in yourself that is, you, you can't learn it on school. You just have to live through it, have the right support. My, my land support, Dave, was crucial in this, saying you got this, you know, you're, you're trained, just adapt and, and execute. And there's nothing you can't fix, you know. I, and I put so much... Tr- thought in it option a b c for everything so i just had to trust myself and, and let's go those first few weeks you like you said you were fighting currents you had to fight your way out and then go to sleep at night and then basically be big worked back to the coast wake up and try to make up all that space that you had been pushed back, all that distance, yeah. and then go beyond that every day. How, mentally, how did you get through that? Because that is just brutal. That is a brutal situation. Yeah, well, I knew it was going to happen. So it's not a big deal. You know, you do about 20 to 30 miles a day if its conditions are good. And at night, you're drifting. I mean, there's no other. You need to rest. So um, I decided with my team that I would not paddle at night just for safety. And as soon as the sun goes down, I start to drift. And it could be like a 90-degree angle back to the coast. And I know that if I'm losing five miles, you know, the first two hours of the next days, if I paddle two and a half knots, you know, a nautical miles per hour, then it's going to take me two hours to go back to the point. And, and that's part of it. Until, you know, usually halfway point where the currents are more favorable and the swell and the wind. Um, but it's part of the journey. You know, the ocean is, is the master and there's no <laughs> cussing against it. You just have to accept it. And the same for all the lack of comfort. I knew people say, well, how do you feel about, you know, eating cold every day and, and being wet on your sleeping bag and, and being confined and, you know, the endless hours. of No, I knew what I was going into. I knew I didn't go there for comfort. I, I went there for adventure, for actually the saltiness. Of on the skin is what I was looking for, and and it's not the fight, but it's it's okay. Bring it on, you know. I'll I'll I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> wow. And um, that's what I wanted. And and like also, they said, "Well, did you miss your family?" Of course, I missed them. I cried every day because I missed the love that they they, they would give me. But then it's enhanced when you go back to land, and there's a, a feeling of enjoying all the simple things again like a dry sheet and a dry pillow a hot shower a cold beer wow it's just that's what i want and now i i enjoy the the pleasures of life that are so simple that you know you didn't see them before anymore what did you miss the most out there what were you looking forward to the most and it can be it can be a few things it can be you know your family or you know friends or a food item? I don't know. What what was really, what were you craving? Um, it's, it's not really craving. I think it's a general sense of stress-free because when you're alone, it's not like when you're a team. You're, you have to be self-aware at all times, right? It's, it's self-aware of your mental state, your emotional state, your physical state, and the boat and the ocean. So there's like a 24-7 awareness that is happening. And the moment you step on land, yes, I mean, I love people. I'm an extrovert. So hugging people and, you know, feeling that emotions are, are fantastic. But I think it's just a, okay, now I can rest. Like there's nothing I have to prepare. My water maker broke after 46 days. And there's a sense of restlessness because if I don't do that, I don't have water in two days and the adventure is over. I have to be rescued. So the fact that I could just go home and, you know, just peace, that was really good. Wow. Unreal. Uh, you know, there, there's so much that you said you went wrong, like your desal that went, went, went out, um, electrical issues, 
When did you feel like over the 92, that is such a long time, man, 91, 92 days, when did you feel like you you had it? You either had it mm-hmm. or... Yeah, so I think it took me halfway point and until I would get into a routine where it would actually be a little bit of a groundhog day. And all I, but I had my, my setup, my, you know... My routine for hygiene, my routine for for sleeping, my routine for paddling, and and that was very comforting. I just had to go through one day at a time, but in weeks at a time. And I don't think I gave myself uh, the relief of feeling like okay, I've got it until I saw land, which is twenty four hours before arriving. I wanted to just be in control. I wouldn't push to do more hours of paddling. I would just I've got a routine. I'm going to stick to it because. Anything can go wrong until the very end. You know, I could go out of the cabin too fast and twist my ankle and that's it. Or like hurt my shoulder. There's so many things that could go wrong that, you know, being exhausted or uh, something, you know, I, maybe my digestion is not de- doing good and that, uh, something. So until the day I could see land, yet I would not give myself the pleasure of thinking you've done it. But when I saw land, oh my God, it was like crying is like i did it i did it i did it i knew i could do it all that feeling was amazing was there any worry when you realized it was taking longer than you expected it ended up being 21 days longer than you originally estimated Mm -hmm. which had to you know cause you to have to ration how how much was that weighing on you how how did you process that it was not a problem at all um (laughs) we made calculations because i so i estimated it was going to be 70 days, but I had 80 days of food. And each day is 4,000 kilocalories, uh, and it's quite a bit. And that's what I ate the first half. But when I reached first half in 49 days instead of the 35, then we just you know sat down and made some calculations. And here's how it goes. Okay, well, I have 30 days of food left, but we estimate it could be 40 five to 50 days left of paddling. So I need to ration. And the way I did it, I saved... Uh, a third of each day's pack and then by putting two-thirds together then that would be one day as 2,500 calories it's not optimal it would be better because if you pedal 14 hours 12 14 you need those 4,000 calories in fact i lost 20 pounds in the end but then his calculations say okay well i'm going to be increasing the 30 days to another 15 that's 45 days if the conditions are good i'll be able to make to honolulu no problem and then again stop to worry about it you you make a decision and because if you can't keep you in your mind like i'm not going to have enough food like it's you have a potential every time you worry you decrease that potential of efficiency you sleep less and and on and on and so the best solution is to find uh, once you have a problem or you preemptively think you could have a problem you find option a b c you decide you go with b boom you go with b you don't think about it and then 2 weeks later we said, okay, well, the conditions are pretty slow. I mean, I mean, I might be running out of food for the last five days. Well, we decide, okay, option A, B, C. I go to Maui, I go to, to Hilo, which is a big island. And okay, I'm going to shave five days off my trip because there's 100 nautical miles closer. Let's go with Hilo. We changed the plan. And that's it. That's adventure. Yeah, adventure, the definition of adventure is unpredictability. And that's why we love it. But you have to be flexible in mind to say, okay, Adapt and execute. Adapt, adapt, adapt all the time. Wow. Unbelievable. I mean, just being on that little vessel for 90 days, 90 plus days, seeing nothing but water. I I just can't imagine day after day being halfway there at 45 days and saying, I have 45 more days of this. Um, There's nothing like it. I, I just can't even imagine what that felt like. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. This was crucial. What you're touching is actually crucial because my first crossing, we reached halfway point in 21 days. And back then, we had a team of three other guys on the boat. And it was like, okay, now it's downhill. We're going home. You know, it's like smelling the barn kind of feeling. On this one, it was completely different. And I, and I had to be honest with myself and with everybody following. 
that it was a hard point to get to a halfway point. Exactly. You said it's 49 days. It's going to be another 49. And I, I associate it to how do you eat an elephant? And it, and the answer is one bite at a time. So I'd reach eating half of the elephant, but I was always done with eating the elephant. <laughs> I was going vomiting elephant and I had to eat the second half. Oh my God. So, Another mental trick that we did, and then Dave, my land support, was key to that. He said, okay, Cyril, I think we need to reframe. How can we reframe this? And forever, my goal was to reach Hawaii. I'm going to cross to Hawaii. And the goal, the objective was to Hawaii. But then the reframing was, okay, the thing is, you're going to enjoy the journey to Hawaii. So then my, my thing was, okay, I've got 49 days of enjoying the ocean. And day to day, I'm going to enjoy it. That was the new goal. So you see, it's it's subtle, but it was key because then the, the objective was not to reach Hawaii. It was to enjoy the process to get to Hawaii. That's wonderful. I love that. I mean, the, just the, the ability to take these mindsets and the things you learned out there and, and apply it. Anyone can learn from that. That is so neat. I'm sure you're applying this now. One question I had, uh, another question was, what were you seeing out there? What was... What were some of the things that were breaking up the monotony of water? Did you see animals? Was it the sunsets, the the night sky? Tell us about what some of those unexpected experiences were. Oh, I the wildlife was fantastic. I'm very slow. You know, I go two miles an hour, so I have time to observe it. And because I'm going forward in a kayak, I saw so much. And I've got a special relationship with birds. Before I left, I went to see a tattoo artist in, in L.A. And I explained to him like Polynesian kind of style of tattoo. And, and I said, I'm going to cross the ocean. And he said, OK, well, you know, there's a very strong um, understanding of the, the birds in the ocean. And they'll follow you and they'll, they'll be it's a good omen when you see and they'll, they'll take care of you. And every day I saw a bird coming by. So I had a special relationship with the birds, the albatross off the coast of California, and then uh, the frigate birds closer to Hawaii. Uh, and the beauty of it, like it was, they were my friends. And once you're alone, you don't see a human face in 90 days. You melt with the elements. The waves were my friend. I could read them. You know, I could read the swell. I could read the the, the wind and how it changed. And then the, the, the clouds bringing a, a shower. And even the fish, like there was Mahi Mahi following me for the whole bay. They were friends, you know. <laughs> so your perception and, and how they're so adapted to their environment and the respect that we have, to, we must have for these amazing creatures that are so adapted to living at sea. After a, a month and a half, the birds every day would come to see me. I mean, imagine this, they're flying day and night in stormy conditions. They're so adapted. We need to take care of them. Wow. So do you saw birds all the way out there. In the middle of your experience, you saw birds. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the time, different birds. The first half was more the, the gliders. So they're small, and they're so adapted to gliding and, and, and surfing the waves, you know, up and down, up and down. They don't move the wings. And those that's albatross kind of birds. But the albatross the biggest. There's medium and small size. And then as I go closer to Hawaii, it was different kind of birds, more of those really fast diving, uh, kind of like the frigate birds. But again, the frigates is the biggest, but they're small and medium one. And they would ca- catch the flying fish up in the air. So the tuna and the mahi-mahi would chase the flying fish. They would go out of the water in flocks of 50 to 100 and gliding you know, up in the air. And then the birds would catch them up in, in, in the sky. It was, <laughs> it was just fantastic. Wow. And, and they would be to me, with me until the end. And the last day I was paddling at night because I was drifting. I was going to miss the, the, the Bay of Hilo. So I had to paddle at two o'clock in the morning and the birds were flying at night around me. And that was a good omen until the end. They were, they were holding my hand and following me. Unbelievable. I, I, I saw, uh, I'm, I'm reading now that an albatross can fly, 10,000 miles without ever touching land. It will land on the water, but it can it yeah. can basically cross oceans just by flying very, I don't know how far in a single flight and then landing on water. And they, there's birds that they've, they've tracked that have never touched water in five to six years, or I mean, touched land five to six years at a time. Yeah. That's unbelievable. I actually did not know that. That is so cool. And, and that's what the, the Tartu artist told me. He said, Cyril, You've got to be part of the ocean. 
And those birds, they spend 90% of their lives on the ocean. That's their environment. You got to be like them. But they will always come back to nest and come back to land at some point. So for you, a safe crossing would be for you to feel in your environment, but always arrive and make a safe passage to Hawaii. Wow. Unbelievable. Did you see anything in the water, anything that was uh, whales or dolphins or anything like that? We, we hear a lot of dolphin sightings on crossings like this. Yeah, I saw them uh, mostly off the coast of California. You know, I left from Monterey Bay, and, and the Monterey Bay is so rich in nutrients that there's so many whales. And I saw them for maybe a week, and same as dolphins. But then after, in the middle, I didn't see too many. I saw the tuna and the mahi-mahi chasing the flying fish, like I told you. And then also marlins chasing the mahi-mahi. But what's funny is I actually didn't know anything about the mahi-mahi until I said, wow, this blue fish is amazing, beautiful. And then I, I could see their behavior. Like when they jump and they, they go sideways and they splash on the water would be more of a territorial splash. And when they jump straight and go fast, as fast as they can, would be when a, a marlin is chasing them. So I would learn just by observation. Wow, <laughs> that is too cool. Tell us about, I bet the sunsets were amazing. And sunrises. Oh, were, were, you yeah. out, were you out in time for sunrises? We hear we hear more about that with ocean rowing because you're rowing around the clock, two hours on, two hours off with a team. And so you see the night sky much more and you see those sunrises and sunsets. But yeah. were you able to experience that as well? Yeah, I did see. I think it would be the second half. The first one was really like efficiency. I, had, I was exhausted, so I would go before night would fall. And I, I didn't really matter to see the sunset. But... After, once I was better in the boat, then I, I would actually enjoy it. The second half, when I said it's all about the process, then I would eat my dinner and watch the sunset going down. I think 90 days is a long time. <laughs> and the best is that there's 90 sunrise, 90 sunset, and, and they're non-polluted by lights. It's 360 degrees of sunrise. Uh, and you can't really describe it. You, you just have to live it. So everybody out there, just go and cross an ocean. <laughs> everybody. Well, tell me, tell me this. Was there anything, uh, you know, I know that the, we, there's a lot of talk about how polluted the earth is and the oceans especially, and, and I see that living on the coast. Did you see anything out there that was any, any sign of humans, whether that be trash floating? I've heard things like refrigerators or shipping containers that are floating all the way to uh, just other boats, any, anything like that of human existence. Yes, there's pollution and and could be improved. Some days I would see two or three pieces. Some some days I would not see any. I did see some big ones and smaller, medium ones. But I have to, to say that it's been improved since the last six years. Six years ago, I saw much more, much more microplastic every day. Like, and this year I didn't see that many. So it's it's uh, it's hopeful. It's not done yet. Everybody doing an effort to not pollute the ocean is doing a good job and we have to keep at it because it's there's still a problem but I'm, I'm hopeful because it's improving a lot wonderful that is so neat and uh, as far as boats i don't think you saw anyone else did you i don't know for, that was an issue the first um, three weeks because off of los angeles there's so many container ships okay <laughs> i had the right equipment so they would see, they would see me on their plotter and i would see them so if they were to come too close, I could call them on the VHF and say, hey, did you see me? I'm seven feet long, seven meters long, and I'm going like so slow. Please make sure you don't hit me. <laughs> but in the middle, yeah, I didn't see any container ships. I was actually happy to be talking to one that was coming four miles away, but I didn't see any human. And the funny story is I, I wanted the first human that I saw after three months to be my girlfriend. And she was coming on a boat coming to see me. But before that, two fishermen came and they came to say hi. I said, what are you guys doing? You're ruining the whole thing. I want to see my girlfriend. <laughs> but uh, after that, you know, it's, it's good to see human. human. And then one of the posts I wrote was all about the, the love that we have for each other. And, and, and that's what I think pushed me to write a blog about human. We're all made of love. And that's how we feed each other. And uh, that's the solution. And in some ways, I went into a more spiritual journey where I, big concept like fraternity and brotherhood started to come to my mind. And I think it's part of the decluttering where I was in my adventure on the day and I, that's all I had to, you know, 
there was no social media. There was no email, no calendar, no meetings, no. That created that space to have those big picture ideas and values. And pretty much I, I rewrote the, the song of John Lennon, Imagine, <laughs> where, you know, it's so brotherhood and love. And, and now it's funny. And I, people say, why did you do this crossing? I didn't really know before I left. But the ocean gave me those answers where those values that I actually had before leaving came clear to me. And now I can actually try to live with more intention for the next second half of my life. Well, that that uh, that is a perfect segue to, to to close out this episode is that experience gave you the the physical space and the mental space to think probably unlike any other chance in your life or anyone listening has ever experienced the sheer space to think and to just explore and to think about your life and what you want to do. What what are you walking away from right now, four weeks after this, uh, as, as a lesson you're taking away from this and what you want to share with the world? What lessons you want to share? What ideas do you want to share? What is going through your head considering all that right now, four weeks after finishing this experience? Well, chasing my dreams, and so to speak, has always been part of my personality. So I just do it. I go, I want to do this, I do it. And people sometimes don't understand, like, why do you want to do this? This is risky. Why? And you don't really have to have a reason other than the experience and knowing that you're going to learn something through it. And before it was, why do you want to do it? And now that I've done it, they want to know how. Uh, but I think everybody should have a little bit more adventure in their own lives and realizing that, yes, we're, it's not that really the right the rat race that we're doing, but yeah, there's this cacophony of noises that is upon us on, on that phone. And, and sometimes taking a break and, and following one's dream, it could be uh, great. Like my friend said, Cyril, you're 45. This crossing of three months is going to be really long. And every day you're going to be like, yes, this is hard. This is hard. But remember that as a scale of your life, it's actually nothing. And it was hard to make three months space for three months on the water on my, my regular life. You know, <laughs> I, I do have a mortgage. I do have a, to have a job and earn money. But he said, zero, those three months are going to give you another perspective of how to live the next 45 years of your life. And, and he was absolutely true. And somehow, if you can take a break, even a week, um, do a hike, do do maybe a retreat or whatever you like. Like if you like yoga, if you like you know a group of musicians, and do whatever you want. But follow your heart and and try to find the space again. It's it's really really nice. Cyril, that's awesome. I know you, you you have a job, you have mortgage, family, all that, and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering how you figured that out, but I, I think we're out of time. Maybe they can reach out and ask, <laughs> but that is a common question is how do you even fit this into a normal life, something of this magnitude? If you want to answer that, great. If if not, this has been an awesome conversation. No, I'll say, I'll say very quickly, it's it's a decision. It sacrifices like I said, I was GM for a company for 12 years and I decided to stop that. When I, my first attempt had to be rescued, I had to decide what am I going to do the next year. Nobody's going to hire me as a GM for seven months, knowing that I would be three months in the water. And I decided I'm going to just do any kind of jobs that would pay my expenses. So I was a diver going under boats, cleaning algae. I was a secret, like a, a kayak guide. And I did consultants here and there, but there was no way that I was going to give up on my dream. And I was willing to do any sacrifice. And in fact, it's not a sacrifice if you do following your heart, you know, following. Uh, and now, okay, uh, I've done it. It's going to be mine for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see what's next. And I, you know, it might take some time to really process this, write a book, think about maybe if you want to ever do it, you don't have to do anything. I mean, you, you, this is, you're living life and it is so incredible. So Cyril, thank you so much for telling your story. This is this is awesome. One, one of the most incredible adventures, uh, one of the most daunting adventures I think I've ever heard of. So yeah, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast link is in the show notes 
And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.